And all right, we are back, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna give you a regular DVD and Blu-ray show again today. We got really good reaction on that last show, and uh, and Tim and I have decided that we're gonna we're gonna you know dip more into that in the future. People want to hear us freestyle a little bit more off the off the discs and and onto other topics. So we're gonna we're gonna take that under advisement for for the future. Um, all within the realm of things that we actually know about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, we're, think of this: the entire the entire world can be and is filtered through movies. Has the, been for over a hundred years. It has been for over a hundred years. So, so not for nothing. This is this is the place to go to talk about some of these things uh, because there's nothing new under the sun, and, and probably there's been a movie made about it. Uh, and and I'm going to go out on a limb too. I think one reason, certainly one reason why people all over the world are reaching a stress point and why anything that happens is going to be magnified by is that the pandemic, when you lock people up, they, they, they get stressed and anxious and, you know, that's, it's, it's got to come busting out somewhere. But I also think the arts and particularly movies are both a direct and a vicarious way of interfacing with the world and coping with whatever issues you may have on it. Um, you know, it, it's often said that soccer is war by another means. And I think um, art and filmmaking in particular is protest by another means or a way of, of doing social experiments. You know, whatever, if you're trying to figure out the world, well, typically you either make a movie about it or you go to see a movie about it. And that has not been available to people for several months. And I think after a solid century of taking movies and television for granted, um, now that people are kind of exhausting their Netflix cues and, and not really getting any you know, uh, ability to go into a dark room and share an experience with a stranger, the world uh, suddenly feels you know, like a colder place. And we need, we need movies back. We really do. So we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna roll here on some uh, some of this week's DVDs and Blu-rays and things that have come in just sort of over the past few weeks and um, it's really an amazing we, we're, we've got a lot of stuff we've got a, some amazing criterions here um, one of which is very interesting it's it was timed for something that has now disappeared from the uh, the, the calendar this year but in any case um, I am going to start off with uh, some of the some of the Naxos classical music stuff and one music thing that's not Naxos. Um, the one that's not is Bush Live in Tampa. This is uh, from music video distributors, MVD Visual, and uh, it is a DVD, Blu-ray, and compact disc combo box in a DVD si a CD sized thing, but it's a uh, it's got it all. Uh, it's a nice little package, and I, you know, I've never been a huge fan of Bush, but this is from their uh, Tampa performance, which I think was relatively recent. But uh, anyway, you know, it's just basically straight up, straight up Bush uh, live concert for those who are fans of Bush and have been for a long time. It's kind of an ageless group. Uh, their following has not uh, diminished at all. Got yeah, one, got Bush. It got one DVD here from the Royal Shakespeare Company and Opus Arte. This is uh, William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, which is maybe, I have to say, the, the film version with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor may be my favorite Shakespearean film, mm. just because it's so damn entertaining and, and Elizabeth Taylor goes so completely crazy in it. Uh, the, the, but this is a great stage performance as well. It's enormously entertaining. It's a great take on it. It's very funny. And the thing that's nicest about this is that they, they clearly have a new generation of uh, Shakespearean stage actors who are 
going to show up in movies in the next five to ten years and and on British television and hopefully even American television and movies. And they're really, really good. There's some great talent in here. And, um, and, and you know, it's uh, there's something really reassuring about that, that after all these centuries, Shakespeare is still kind of like forging the next generation. Um, got, uh, got a Bel Air Classique title here. Verdi's Falstaff, which is really, really a very entertaining staging of it. This is from the orchestra and chorus of Teatro Real, uh, and uh, it's it's really good. I've I've seen a couple of different Falstaffs. This is maybe the best one I've ever seen. Uh, I, the music is great, but in terms of the staging and the performances, this really elevates it well above what most people are accustomed to with quote unquote opera. We've also got. Um, Richard Wagner's Der Fliegende Hollander. Um, there's no way of saying that without sounding like you want to conquer the world. And I can say that because I'm half German. Uh, Richard <laughs> Wagner's Der Fliegende Hollander. Um, this is kind of a pretty aggressive staging uh, by a director named Paul Curran. And I did a little bit of uh, research into, into Paul Curran because I'm not that familiar with him, frankly. Uh, and this is from the uh, orchestra I Coro Belmaggio Musicale Fiorentino. Don't really know much about that particular uh, operation, but it was recorded at the Teatro del Maggio uh, in January of 2019. So it's a very, very recent performance. Um, this is more commonly known to most people as the Flying Dutchman, but I like it when you say Der Fliegende Hollander. It just sounds more uh, intimidating. Uh, this was shot in 4K Ultra HD. It is only on Blu-ray, but it is, uh, it's a very aggressive staging of it. It's impressive but a little bit cold, so uh, take that for what you will. Then we also have a lovely Blu-ray disc, uh, the L.A. Phil 100, the Los Angeles Philharmonic Centennial Birthday Gala from Walt Disney Hall. Um, I had no idea the L.A. Phil was that old, but I've grown up with the L.A. Phil. Tim, you've been to Disney Hall, haven't you? Oh, yes, yes, many times. Love See, I, I, I have yet to go to Disney Hall, and we're, we're like more than 10 years, 15 years into the thing. I haven't been to it yet. It's crazy. Uh, I went when, when, when Gustavo Dudamel took over from Esapeka Solomon. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the entire, the entire time Esapeka was uh, the conductor of the symphony, never went to see Esapeka. Uh, uh, I didn't either. Right? Yeah. And then here comes, I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to miss the debut of Gustavo Dudamel. And that's when we went down to see, um, went down to Disney Hall. Well, I, I, I really, really need to make an effort to do it. I mean, it's a great resource you know it's not like new york where everything is very concentrated and you're about a 15 10 to 15 minute uh subway run from pretty much anything you know you can go within a few minutes you can pretty much go from any broadway theater to yeah. uh rockefeller center to lincoln center to uh, uh soho to madison square garden they're all yeah. right there la is not like that for those who don't live here you know the to go down to the music center downtown depending on where you live, is a bit of a schlep. Uh, you know, I mean, we all live in the same general L.A. metro area, but seriously, depending on where you, like, for the Hollywood Bowl, for instance, when I want to go to the Hollywood Bowl, I literally have to set aside a timetable of two and a half hours from the time that I leave my door, my front door, and lock it, to the time that I expect to actually sit my butt down in a seat. I need to allow two and a half hours. Now, that's just for driving, waiting in line, parking, walking, going through security, 
the last time we did that, uh, I think it might even have been my daughter's first ever concert, which was Jeff Lynn and ELO, which is basically just Jeff Lynn. Yeah. And we and we had the nosebleed seats at that concert, which meant that my little daughter, who was at the time probably about two, uh, I basically had to carry her all the way to the nosebleed seats of the uh, of the uh, uh, the uh, Hollywood Bowl, and that was exhausting. <laughs> and and I mean, you know, you see people carrying you know cooler chests and everything up there. Anyway. The L.A. Phil 100 uh, Gala is absolutely wonderful. It includes performances uh, conducted by Salonen, by Dudamel, and by Zubin Mehta, who shows up every once in a while to uh, as conductor emeritus. Um, it's, it's really, really beautiful. A lot of just really, really great stuff here. It includes uh, uh, a Richard Wagner prelude to uh, Die Meisterzinger von Nuremberg, um, some Ravel, a world premiere of Daniel Bjarnson's From Space I Saw Earth, which was a commission specifically for the L.A. Phil, which is absolutely beautiful. And then there's um, there's more on the second disc, uh, which is all about the L.A., the tradition of the of the new, they call it, the L.A. Uh, LA Phil. It's just gorgeous. It's really, really beautiful stuff. Uh, and then there are four titles from Naxos proper. A, uh, a, a, an opera I'm not particularly familiar with, kind of newish, kind of a little bit tweaked. Uh, this is from the Dutch National Opera, which is Stefano Landi's La Morte d'Orfeo, The Death of uh, Orpheus. And uh, I, I, it's kind of supposed to be funny, I think. This is from the 15th century. I'm not terribly um, keyed into it. It was all right. I watched about a half an hour of it. And then we have uh, Der Zwerg by Alexander von Zelinsky by the uh, Berlin Opera and Chorus, Orchestra and uh, Chorus of the Berlin Opera, more specifically. Um, this also includes uh, a, an Arnold Schoenberg piece on it, which is, uh, which is great. Schoenberg was a, is very revered at my alma mater, UCLA. They named the, music's, the musical building after him, Schoenberg Hall. But um, uh, otherwise, Alexander von Zemlinsky's Der Zwerg, otherwise known as The Dwarf, is the, uh, the opera here. It's a one-act opera from 1921. And uh, it's a little bit avant-garde, but it's fine. It's decent. It's good. Um, and then um, the last one uh, of the operas is Henry Purcell's King Arthur, which is sung in English with German dialogue. Believe that or not, that's Blu-ray from the uh, Staatsoper. Uh, the Staatsoper Unter den Linden in Germany, the choir and the uh, opera of Unter den Linden, and the Academy of uh, Music in Berlin. Uh, it's really kind of wild. They went a little bit overboard, I think, with some of the uh, art direction and, and costuming and stuff in this, but um, Purcell is a, is a significant figure, and uh, King Arthur is something I was not familiar with, but it's fine, fair enough. And then the last one uh, is a Tony Schmidt film called The State Opera, which is uh, essentially a, um, a documentary all about the, um, the, the process of three different operas and how they are staged and come to life and so forth. And it's very, very interesting. If you are more familiar with, obviously, the process of film, as Tim and I are, it's really much, it, it, it's, it's quite a radical departure to see how you put an opera together. It's even radically... Yeah departed from, I think, state theater here, you know, uh, our Broadways and our, you know, off-Broadway theater productions and musicals and whatnot. Uh, opera is a whole different beast. 
it's a whole different thing because you have to coordinate the performance with the orchestra the whole time. It's not like, you know, uh, like something where, okay, now we break in the song, bring in the music. It's all very, very, uh, very unique. So there is that. That's the music end of things. And then let me cover just a, a couple of box sets, more than a couple, handful of box sets from Kino. Kino's uh, released a whole bunch of really, really terrific box sets over the uh, past couple of months. And um, we've got, first off, the Barbara Stanwyck Collection, which brings together Interns Can't Take Money, The Great Man's Lady, and The Bride Wore Boots. Those are three films of Barbara Stanwyck's career that are perhaps not as famous as some of the other stuff. They're from the late 30s into the, into the mid-40s. But she's great in all of them. She's absolutely fantastic. Uh, different, uh, two different leading men, Joel McRae in Interns Can't Take Money and The Great Man's Lady. And then uh, Robert Cummings in The Bride Wore Boots. And Barbara Stanwyck, I still think one of the great underrated uh, screen legends of that period. Uh, Double Indemnity, obviously, is a thing we always associate her with. I always think of Ball of Fire as well, but she's yeah. just, you know what? She She's incomparable. And I first, dude, I mean, our generation discovered her when she was older and on the Big Valley. On the Big Valley, yeah. yeah right? Yeah. It, yeah. It was a little, you had to go back to see Double Indemnity and, and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Fred McMurray, you know, I'm, my three sons, I'm, then you go, go watch Double Indemnity. And <laughs> talking. I'm like, that's the dad from my three sons? Yeah, Isn't wow. that funny? Isn't that funny? They all wound up on television. We also have the Deanna Durbin collection number one. Hopefully that bodes well that we're going to get more such collections. Uh, uh, this is 100 Men and a Girl, Three Smart Girls Grow Up, and it started with Eve. Deanna Durbin, just a delightful presence. Kind of forgotten today in many respects. Yeah. Really worth rediscovering. She also was a figure from the 30s and 40s, late 30s into the uh, early 40s here. And um, just kind of one of those sweet... Uh, Virginia Mayo kind of picked up her baton at a certain point, right? Mm -hmm. um, Deanna Durbin just has this really, really sweet, wonderful uh, comedian quality to her, and um, it's it. She's just she's the best. Um, Leopold Sikowski and uh, Adolf Manjou co-star in One Hundred Men and a Girl, really delightful. And uh, the other one that I think is really, really great is uh, it started with Eve because it's got um, Robert Cummings again and Charles Lawton, who is always just perfect. Really beautiful. Um, we've also got uh, Blake Edwards' Pink Panther cartoon collection. Finally, oh, yes. all yes, all six of the cartoon, uh, the the the, uh, the cartoon um, stuff, the sets that were released previously, they're all together, all six in, in a box set that is, of course, pink, and uh, it's wonderful. You get them all in one box set. Still one of the most innovative cartoon series in history. Also, Western Classics One is uh, the first of many sets to come that uh, put together classic westerns from the 40s and I think eventually probably the 50s. Uh, Kino here has packaged together When the Daltons Rode, The Virginian, and Whispering Smith. These are all really, really interesting films. Uh, Whispering Smith stars Alan Ladd, who was a, a student of my father's many, many moons ago, and I heard many stories uh, about his escapades. Maybe I'll share some of them at some future point on the show. Whispering Smith is not necessarily one of his best performances, but it's not a bad Western generally. Thanks more to Robert Preston than Alan Ladd, frankly. That's from 1948. Um, the Virginian has Joel McRae, uh, you know, basically standing between the woman and the cattle thieves and the usual kind of uh, the lone man of the West scenario. And then there is When the Daltons Road, which is all about the Dalton gang. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, Randolph Scott leads that one with uh, Broderick Crawford in a really, really good sporting role. So that's uh, Western Classics 1. We then also have three volumes of Film Noir, The Dark Side of Cinema, Volume 1, 2, and 3. Uh, there are five films in Volume 1 and three films in each of uh, 2 and 3. I would recommend, if you're a Film Noir fan, don't chintz on this. You want to grab them all. Most of the really big ones are in Volume 1. It includes A Bullet for Joey, Big House USA, Storm Fear, uh, along with Witness to Murder, and He Ran All the Way. Those are all really important noirs, but especially Big House USA and A Bullet for Joey. Those are really important. Um, the uh, the six films that are in Volumes 2 and 3 are a little bit less, but not significantly so. They're just kind of lesser known um, the uh, the female animal with Hedy Lamarr and Jane Powell uh, is probably the most famous on the second volume. That's from 1958. Hedy Lamarr, by the way, uh, getting a biopic treatment soon, isn't she? Well, Hedy, people don't realize that Hedy, in addition to being ridiculously beautiful and a very good actress, was a genius yeah. uh, who invented things during Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Yeah. She invented yeah. Wi-Fi. Everyone yeah. in the world who uses Wi-Fi, you owe that yeah. to Hedy. Yeah. Uh, and yet I can't think of her name without picturing Harvey Corman in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, and then Dark Side of Cinema 3 uh, brings us again a great Barbara Stanwyck performance with Robert Preston uh, in The Lady Gambles, which is from 1949. Really, really uh, a pretty fun film. And uh, you also get The Sleeping City in this, set, in this set with Richard Conti and Colleen Gray, which is, which is a little bit of an underrated uh noir from 1950 which is really interesting i find that noir takes a, a fascinating turn from the 40s to the 50s mm -hmm. and um this is this is what i think is, is the thing that happens noir in the 40s is still kind of living with the residue of prohibition it's about crime and it's about extortion and cheating and theft and heists and and Maltese Falcon stuff. By the time we get into the 50s, there's kind of a post-World War II thing going on with noir. A lot of it is about spies. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is about political corruption. It suddenly sure. is, it's not about your regular street-level crime. It's now got a broader focus. By the 1950s, yeah. noir suddenly kind of said, you know what, there's a big world out there. And I think that was the impact of World War II. When World War II started, the United States was saying, yeah, you know, that, that's your battle. By the time mm -hmm. it ended, the whole world was devastated. And you couldn't, you couldn't make movies about parochial small town things anymore. So I find that fascinating comparing the noirs of the 40s to the 50s. Yeah, the thing that we have to remember about noir is that noir is not a genre. It is a style that can be applied to any genre. That's it. That's uh, it. And uh, there, there are noir westerns. Uh, the, the Manchurian Candidate, in a certain sort of way, is noir. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so, so, so we see uh, you know, noir horror films, for that matter. So uh, we, we see noir being applied to a multiplicity of genres um, outside of just the crime genre. People also make a mistake uh, or confabulate noir with gangster movies. Uh, yeah. Cagney and, uh, yeah. and and Humphrey Bogart uh, earlier in their careers, they were making gangster movies. You know, white, white, white heat. White movie. heat. It's not yeah. a, it's not a noir. Uh, there's a, a divide there. It, it has a timeline associated with it. You know, post-war. Uh, yeah. And then you know you just sort of work your way up until you get to sort of like neo noir. The way you can tell neo noir, of course, uh, color. If it, if it's in color, right, uh, right, it's neo noir. Um, so you know, interesting stuff. 
All right, where do we? Uh, where should we move to next? Shall we do do a little TV? I have some TV. Yeah, let's uh, do some TV up over here. Some interesting sure. stuff, including uh, Creep Show season one. Interesting thing about uh, this iteration of Creep Show are some of the people uh, who were involved in it. Uh, Tom Savini uh, directed an episode of Creep Show. Uh, uh, you got uh, Stephen King writing an episode of this Creep Show. Um, so you know, interesting sort of real serious powerhouse. Uh, uh, writers and directors doing some of this work. What I like most about it, though, is that Adrian Barbeau <laughs> shows up <laughs> in a couple of these episodes of this creep show. Uh, this is season one. Uh, what are those got? We've got The Watchmen, season one. Apparently, they may, there may only be a season one of The Watchmen. It's kind of kind of complicated uh, series of things going on with that uh, that will determine whether or not it comes back for another season. Damian Lindoff, uh, he pretty much says, you know, I think I said everything I got to say. Uh, and he kind of did. I loved this this iteration of Watchmen. Watchmen, of course, uh, the adaptation uh, from the graphic novel and the uh, and the feature film. Uh, uh, many of the characters, uh, you know, from the from the graphic novel and the feature film, uh, show up in this series, uh, particularly Jeremy Irons' character, uh, and all of that. But of course, you have new characters and a very very specific focus in this Watchmen television series. Regina King. Uh, being the lead of the series. Uh, the, the, the series begins in Tulsa, uh, 1921. We, 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 obviously, we just dealt with all kinds of things related to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, Juneteenth and, and all of that. That stuff is in, the, is in this uh, series of The Watchmen, and we work our way up to the present day, uh, touch on many of the things that are touched on in the film, uh, and uh, and then uh, Damian Lindoff manages to work some very, very contemporary thought and messages into this iteration of the Watchmen series. It was very controversial. A lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people did. I loved it. Particularly loved the work of Regina King here. This is how clever this iteration of the Watchmen is. You watch this, uh, this, this season one, and by the time you get to the end of it, I'm not going to ruin anything for anybody. It's the kind of thing you really have to watch on your own. When you land at the end of this series, you think to yourself, oh my goodness. It was right in front of me. Yeah, the, the whole, whole time. damn time. Yeah. Right in front of you. Right in front of you. And I think that that's just excellent writing, excellent filmmaking. Uh, when something, when they, they can put the answer to the question right in front of you and you don't see it. Uh, but when they sh tell you what it is, you go, wowzers, you got me. So that's what I feel about that. Anything decent with that box? Yeah, there's a ton on this one. Uh, 90 minutes of special features, including two exclusive documentaries that are really worth checking this out all by themselves. Uh, tons. There's trailers. There's stuff on uh, on directing and uh, Comic-Con uh, footage and things on the visual effects. I mean, you know, the, the uh, notes from the uh, graphic novel artist, Dave Gibbons. I mean, it's really... Just everything you need to know about how they put it together, how it was, how it was uh, planned and executed. What I love about this is that uh, this is one of those rare times where I feel like Hollywood takes a risk. Now, I know you're thinking, like, Watchmen, it's a famous comic book. How can that be a risk? It, everything's comic book these days. There's nothing risky about a comic book. Yeah, but the movie Watchmen was a bust. Yeah. It was not good. Uh, it, it kind of left a bad taste in everyone's mouths about, uh, comic books generally. It was R rated. It had Billy Crudup, you know, in the, in the, as a weird blue, blue penis. Yeah. It's just all that stuff. And it just, it, it, and people who are fans of the, the original graphic novel 
did not like the movie. They just felt betrayed by it. And so that's usually a case where Hollywood says, all right, you know, tail between legs, we're, we're going to cut and run. And somewhere uh, in the DC Warner Brothers HBO hierarchy, some smart person said, I think we can fix this. I think we can revisit Watchmen and fix what was wrong, but let's do it as an HBO miniseries. Mm -hmm. Let's not do another Watchmen movie. That's normally the thing. It's like, oh, let's do it again as a movie and let's like goof it up. Let's put some comics in it and, you know, maybe uh, give it a lighter tone because it's always about the tone. And somebody said, no, I think we need a different tone, but I think also we need a different direction. And I think it needs more time to breathe as a story. Let's do it on HBO. Really a smart move. And uh, it's, it has redeemed the entire concept. I, uh, apparently, they're not going to do another series, uh, but they should. They should do another season. They really should. It left, it left open so many possibilities to continue to explore. Yeah, interesting stuff. That I just loved it. Uh, the Detectorist, a uh, lovely sort of little sitcom, a um, comedy in, in, in any case. What I love about this series is that it's just so quiet uh, and sharp and wry. Uh, it's about these these guys who are uh, metal with these they're metal detectors and they go out looking for stuff. But it's all sorts of other stuff that's actually going on in the series. Toby and Jones and Mackenzie Toby, Crook. Toby Jones and Mackenzie Crook. It's just a, the loveliest little series there. Uh, anything any, anything uh, by way of special features? With we that? got that would be yeah. uh, seasons two and three, right? Seasons two and three, uh, really really uh, super fun stuff. Not really. There's a, there's a uh, you know featurette in a Christmas episode uh, on the uh, on series two. And then uh, some cast interviews and behind-the-scenes featurette on Series 3. So not much by way of anything, but uh, otherwise still a really charming show, really well-directed. What I love most about that series is that Diana Rigg is in it. She plays the mother of her own actual daughter in the series. So Rachel uh, Sterling, who is her actual daughter, is in the series. I didn't know that. Rachel Sterling? And she's actually her actual mother. Rachel uh, Sterling is 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 her her daughter. That's yes. amazing. I didn't know that. Yep. yep. Wow. It's, it's, it's to play around. It's Even I learned things on this show. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Pennyworth. Uh, Pennyworth is a uh, season one. Pennyworth is the sort of origin story of Alfred Pennyworth, uh, who ultimately goes to work for uh, Bruce Wayne's dad. Uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, and and become um, you know uh, sort of um, um, taking care of young Bruce Wayne, who will eventually become Batman. So Pennyworth was a special forces soldier, I suppose, <laughs> during World War II. Now this this series uh, it takes all kinds of flights of fancy. Yeah. Um, from the from the sort of ordinary Batman series, and sometimes the numbers don't really add up in terms of they do not. They no, it's kind of set during the mod sixties. Yeah. Uh, with all sorts of backstories with these sort of um, uh, clandestine groups fighting each other to uh, take over parts of the government. And the, you have the, the sort of so, supposed to be socialists. It harkens, it speaks to some of the um, the uh, riots that they had in the 60s with the coal miners and the uh, yeah. and the police. It, it sort of speaks to some of that stuff. So it's, it's interesting in that sort of way. Uh, I don't know. I, I rather enjoyed it a little bit. I don't know how you can possibly connect it up back to Gotham City and Batman. I just... Other, other you don't. Other, this doesn't make any sense. None of this stuff lives in the same universe. That's the thing with the DC stuff, which is kind of liberating. Everything Marvel has to sort of be part of the, the MCU, so it all has to, to has to drop in like a jigsaw puzzle, and, and you know, they, it's all very tailored. Uh, with DC, they, they are willing to allow each of these series to live in their own universe, to reinvent yeah. the DC universe 
in its in its own sense. I mean, you have the Arrowverse and the shows that adhere to that, but this is different. And so was Gotham. Frankly, Gotham was yeah. not part of the the, the Arrowverse. Um, and Pennyworth is its own thing as well. I, I I think it's an enjoyable show, but the idea of taking Alfred and reinventing his youth as a, as like some kind of a super spy is yeah. really kind of silly. Alfred a hard, has a hard drinking womanizing super spy. You cannot help but watch the show and think, why the hell would that guy become a butler? <laughs> like, why, why, why would, why is that? You know, like, why aren't you becoming Batman? Because clearly, uh, you got better training than Bruce ever had. I mean, uh, you know, you're the superhero. What are you doing being a, you know, a manservant? That's ridiculous. So yeah, it's a little bit of a silly stretch. It's kind of hard to make that leap. But um, the and the other thing is, look. Alfred was never much of a hero in any incarnation of Batman, except for the original campy TV show with Adam yeah. West, yeah. in which occasionally, if Bat, if Bruce Wayne needed to go to a party and Batman needed to show up somewhere, Alfred would put the bat suit on and show up with his British accent. And nobody would realize that it was, this, you know, something's rot- not going, something's not right. The cowl is not that uh, doesn't doesn't hide everything. Uh, so that's the closest it ever came to me. But you know what? Look, it's a well-done show. We talk about noir. It has a noir style. Pennyworth yes. is definitely noir. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's it's got that for it. Um, Harley Quinn, as long as we're on the uh, in the Batman world, Harley Quinn, the animated show, has the uh, complete first season out, um, coinciding with the, uh, the live-action release uh, that we should be seeing momentarily of Birds of Prey. Um, you know what? Harley Quinn is is a weird animated show. It's it looks like it's designed for kids. It has that kind of DC animation look to it, it but in terms of the content, it definitely is not. It's uh, it's definitely aimed at adults, and it's yeah. got a little a little kind of um, Adult Swim twinkle in its eye. I I guess I kind of enjoyed it. Okay, um, you know, didn't love it, didn't didn't dislike it, but found it entertaining. It's a certainly interesting incarnation of the Joker, but, uh, you know, it's a little bit too um, uh, aggressively self-aware for my taste generally. But it's not bad. It's not bad. That's uh, season one of Harley Quinn, the animated series. I'm looking at uh, Star Trek uh, Short Treks, which is a, a set of short films that were carved out of the Star Trek Discovery universe. Uh, which of course is uh, you know, Michael Burnham and uh, Captain Christopher Pike and the young Spock and, uh, and you know yeah. that sort of storyline. Interesting, same sort of thing there. Uh, you know, watching the Star Trek uh, Discovery universe. So uh, these things lay out this way, I think. So you have uh, the original Star Trek period, which, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this series takes place about ten years before. So Captain Pike. Uh, what's what's the name of the uh, uh, the Star Trek episode that involves uh, 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 Captain Pike and Spock having to take the ship back to the? Uh, oh, the Menagerie. The yeah, Menagerie. Menagerie. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that he was he would have been he would have been uh, uh, Spock's captain prior to Spock going going aboard the Enterprise and becoming yeah uh, 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 number one for um, for Captain Kirk. So these things sort of lay out that way. These little shorts are just culled from that Star Trek Discovery universe. So you have all of those folks sort of showing up in these, and they cobble together what's uh, things that are going on just before the stuff that uh, pushes the Star Trek Discovery uh, a narrative forward. Uh, this is stuff mostly that happened just before that. 
and then we get off into the Star Trek Discovery narrative. So, you know, neat little shorts. And again, they're trying to do the thing where they tie everything together and, yeah. and fill in the, the holes. Don't and, exactly do that. The, the numbers don't make any sense. And I got to tell you, you and I both grew up, you know, Star Trek, Spike, uh, uh, Spock, yeah. uh, uh, Kirk. And you know what Spock never mentioned? Sister. <laughs> never mentioned it. Never mentioned it. Not once. Talk, talk that, to Zark. Mom. Mom. Uh, we, see, we, we, see his, yeah. we see his dad. Uh, but he never, ever, ever mentioned the sister. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, here's the thing that I found to be uh, interesting about this is that I didn't know that Rain Wilson was dragged in to play Harvey Mudd. Yeah. I didn't know that. Or Harry Mudd, sorry. Harry Mudd. Yeah, yeah, Harry Mudd. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't realize that Rain Wilson had been. Uh, had been. They. They. They brought him in as uh, Harry Mudd. I didn't realize you know, Harry I Mudd. I saw had... that episode, and I don't think I made. I don't. For whatever reason, it did not occur to me that that was Rain Wilson. I. I know. It's. It's not. Again, not the same as the original actor who played Harry Mudd, whose name is escaping me. Uh, but uh, you know what? I mean, look. If I were going to cast somebody as Harry Mudd, and you want to stick to the the blustery, old, fat, kind of lecherous guy that Harry Mudd, the mustache and all that. Uh, I would have, I would have been aggressive and said, you know what, everyone hates him already. Louis C.K. Harry Mudd. <laughs> I think it would have made more sense. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, moving along. Um, there's that Jim Carrey series, uh, Kidding. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, I, I watched season one of that. I kind of, kind of, kind of fell off of uh, season two, but I rather enjoyed it. He's sort of playing, he's not playing a uh, Mr. Rogers type character. Everybody says that, but it's not really at all. But he is the host of a children's show, and he has, he's, he's a guy who's, who's fairly meek and, uh, and uh, introverted. Uh, he has a wife and kids. His family's kind of falling apart. And that's just sort of like underlying. Uh, I think the show is about how this guy who, who uh, has to be this very particular way in the context of the kids that he works for in this television show and how he is all torn apart inside about the dissolution of his family and is, uh, and is probably dealing with some sort of trauma and stress, yet he still has to be this other guy on television. It's kind of interesting in that way. I love that uh, Frank Langella and Judy, Gear are, are, uh, Judy Greer, I love me some Judy Greer in the show. Uh, Catherine Keener shows up in the show, love her. So, you know, a good, good cast, uh, interesting show that's funny, yet still sort of dramatic. Got a couple of National Geographic shows here, uh, both of which have been on a very long time. The first one is Brain Games, hosted by uh, Keegan-Michael Key of Key & Peele. And uh, this is in season eight, which reminds me of how long Key & Peele has been off the air. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. been off a long time. Uh, but Brain Games is really a, a fascinating show. It's it's sort of a game show, but it's it's a uh it, it's it's sort of like um more social experiments than anything else. It's uh it's designed to sort of get celebrities to be to participate in uh really really fun experiments that sort of teach you how to how to interact with the world with these these really cool interactive games that have all kinds of you know physics qualities to them and mathematics mathematics challenges and whatnot. It's 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 very very interesting. It's very clever and very it reminds revealing about the way the brain works. Yeah, uh, our, our our brains are a hell of a thing. And it's it, it really it's it's in, I mean it's instructive. It, that's the reason it's on National Geographic. It's a game show that teaches you things, and more so than Jeopardy, which you know teaches you weird trivia that you will never use a million years in, <laughs> of your life. Uh, the one that's been on forever and it's in season sixteen. This is incredible to me. Oh, is in fact the the incredible Doctor Paul. 
Yeah. Uh, this is a three-disc set uh, that includes uh, ten episodes from season 16. And uh, Dr. Paul is uh, basically a, a veterinarian and uh, works in Michigan. And this it, it just never ceases to be amazing uh, what he does and uh, at any given hour and any given time and any given all these different animals. It's just really it's a fascinating show and it's been around for 16 years. So people must love seeing their animals healed. It's uh, he's a large animal veterinarian uh, is, is, is what he is. So he, all, he very often has on uh, those long rubber gloves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and his, his hands are very often. You know, up some poor animals, but so you got to be you got to be ready for that. If you're See, that's that a show. that's a thing when you, like around here when you talk about veterinarian, that's the person that just does cats and dogs, and maybe occasionally like will tell you that they can't do anything for your hamster or your parakeet. Um, uh-huh. When you get out to a place like Michigan, and especially where he is, like a veterinarian means that you, uh, horses, sheep, cows, you know, any number of other things. It's a, it's a it's a bigger deal in certain areas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what then the last, we got, we, we got this, head of the class. I was going to say, is this the head of the class, the, 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 the yeah. 1986 series? Yes, it class? is. I love Howard Hessman. Howard uh, Hessman. Uh, Howard, I love that series. Um, remember that Robin Givens cut her bones on that show. That's right. Uh, Brian Robbins, who went on to become quite the director uh, for a long time, Brian Robbins, yep. uh, uh, cut his bones on that show. Rain Pryor, Richard, Richard Pryor's, I guess, oldest daughter, yep. uh, was was on that show. Uh, it was just a show that I really, really loved back in the day. It's, it was basically the reverse of the Sweat Hogs and Welcome Back Cotter. Exactly. Back Cotter. It was, you know, the, the Sweat Hogs, you know, the bad kids and all this. These kids uh, were the exceptional kids in school. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Howard Hessman played there played their history teacher if i'm not mistaken yep. uh in sort of except so it's the reverse of all of that other stuff and it was but it was still just really really neat love that love that series i think it was on for about five or six seasons it uh, uh it was it's it's a it's a chart you know i love the hairstyles because the hairstyles are so 80s they're all <laughs> so you. 80s it's incredible uh, lots of hair everybody has yeah lots of hair. this is season one if i'm not mistaken right yes it is it is season one and it is head of the class and it's uh it's a lot of fun howard hessman <laughs> Um, had to pivot. You know, it's it's always tough for actors who become famous playing a particular part. They get pigeonholed, and they people want them to keep doing that forever. And uh, Howard Hessman was famous for being. You know, there, there are very few who've been able to pivot away from that. William Shatner's done it a couple of times, um, and Howard Hessman had to do it after playing Johnny Fever on WKRP, which yep. who was arguably. The, the favorite character on a, on a show with a lot of favorite characters. I mean, there are people who are big fans of Venus Flytrap or Venus of Les Flytrap. Nessman or of, uh, or of Herb, Herb Tarlick or even Lonnie Anderson on that show. Um, you know, Jan Smithers was one of my favorites on that show. I love Jan Smithers on the show. But honestly, most everyone tuned into that show to see how stoned and screwed up Johnny Fever was going to be in any given episode. Yeah, I mean, that was it. Yeah. How messed up is he going to be? That show, I can, you know, there were there were a few shows back then that were just far and away more sophisticated than they seemed. They were really really funny. Yeah. But in in certain that Barney Miller was another one. 
Yeah. Um, uh, where, you know, the, the, the storylines and the ideas were funny, 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 but they were just all far and away more sophisticated than they seem. And, and a lot of it owed to the sort of really bright humor that guys yes. like Howard Hessman and Tim Reed, uh, you know, brought to those shows. Just excellent stuff. Well, How- Howard Hessman pivoted beautifully away from Johnny Fever to something that was 180 degrees opposite. And here he's playing a teacher. He went from playing a stone DJ to a teacher of gifted kids, and he made it work. And uh, I think head of the class did stick around longer than WKRP, believe it or not. Well, they uh, changed uh, teachers because it became, I think, it was it Billy they, Connolly? They bought Billy, Billy Connolly, Connolly on. Place? They oh, brought yeah. Billy yep, yep. Four or five seasons or something like that. That's and, right. And it was still a pretty good show. It was still a good show. Billy Connolly uh, basically made himself... Uh, an American success story at that point. Nobody knew who he was. They're like, this guy's funny. People in Europe were saying, yeah, well, where, where have you been for the last, you know, 10 years? Uh, Billy Connolly was, you know, all through the 70s was wiping people out uh, doing stand-up all over uh, all over the UK and, and the continent. And, but you uh, know what? My favorite turn of Billy Connolly is, I don't know how we got to talk about Billy, but his, his turn as um, in Mrs. Brown, where he uh, played the groomsman. Uh, uh, to uh, who? Yeah. Queen Victoria, I guess it was. Queen Victoria. Did I, 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 I'm sure I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, when I was at Cannes in, I think, 93? Was it 93 that that film was there? I, I'm pretty sure it was 93. 93 or 4. Um, Her Majesty Mrs. Brown premiered at Cannes. And we had a great press day at a, at, a, at a restaurant on the beach in Cannes. It was fantastic. Nice little covered thing and the tables. And I was sitting there, you know, they split the table into two halves, right? Billy Connolly in one half and Judy Dench in the other. And I was on the Judy Dench end. And we were having all, I mean, there were probably seven or eight of us having a wonderful conversation with Judy Dench in the sunlight on the beach. It was fat. It's a dream. It's a bloody dream when you get to go to Cannes and do this. And, and we're talking to Judy Dench and we're just having a good time. And slowly, the laughter at the other end of the table gets louder and louder and louder. And eventually, Judy Dench is laughing at Billy Connolly. And the rest of us are. <laughs> Billy Connolly took over the table. He took over Judy Dench's half of the table. And we just we all just kept laughing. He was so damn funny. It was just unbelievable how funny he was. And it's all natural. He doesn't, it's not prepared material. He yeah, just, he's, he's, he's not, he's, it's, it's, it's not Robin Williams. No, Robin no. Of, it was a different thing. Uh, but he was just funny. Billy Connolly has one of the funniest things. I don't know how we got off on Billy Connolly from Howard Hesman, but thank you, head of the class. Billy Connolly, I was watching, you know, I subscribed to his, his little daily feed thing on Facebook, and there's, there's an old interview. I forget what show it's from, but he's, really, he's basically saying I was never any good at school. Uh, I didn't like school. I was, I was terrible at school. And, and uh, whoever it is, it might, it might have been Jimmy Fallon or somebody just asked him and said, well, you know, you didn't learn anything? Not a thing. Didn't learn anything at school. So if you, had, if you ran a school, like, what do you think schools should teach kids? What should they be teaching? And he, without even missing a beat, he goes, uh, how to get rich and how to get laid. That was it. That was it. That's all he. That's all he cared about. And by, and by the way, that's the proper education for both the boys and the girls. <laughs> Billy Connolly, he's just you know he's an old hippie from the seventies who just never never grew up. Uh, I want to hit a bunch of these uh, titles from Paramount, if I could. We got a bunch of stuff from Paramount that's worth mentioning. There is uh, from because Paramount is now releasing their their um, uh, you know Paramount Classics line. And 
a few things that are kind of coming out. It's the Paramount Presents line, but there are a few things that are also coming out that are, that are not necessarily a part of it. Uh, John Travolta and Urban Cowboy gets 40th anniversary wow. release. They're not calling this a Paramount Presents, but it basically has the same packaging. So I think there may have been a discussion as to whether this movie was worth even including. You know what? It's not a very good movie, but it was a seminal movie because it kind of it, it sort of created that whole weird cowboy craze of, of yeah. that, that, that right with the saloons where you go and you do the electric electronic bull like at Gillies and that it's that just Gillies like well, thing, that, yeah. it was, that I mean, was a it was thing. Was Gillies. Gillies was the spot. Uh, Deborah Winger was quite good in that movie, though. I just I she wanna, I she wanna, is. I, I want to call her out. She was outstanding. Well, it's from 1980. Came right, you know, on the heels of uh, John Travolta being a a trendsetter in both Grease and Saturday Night Fever, and uh, I, Travolta was just in that moment where if he was in a movie, everybody wanted to do whatever it was that he was doing, and this made that suddenly like you could go to 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 Cleveland or to Oakland or uh, Miami and find a country western bar where people are wearing 10 gallon hats and riding an electric bull or electronic Dude, bull brothers brothers was walking all over St. Louis with those western shirts on I'm like it brother crazy <laughs> when the hell did you become a cowboy it was, it was after they saw that movie it was a thing um also some really really wonderful classics that are out on uh MOV uh, manufacturer on de- or MOD manufacturer on demand the original Barbarella which is oh. still just such an absolute cl- look Screenplay by Terry Southern, who, of course, is the genius that worked with Stanley Kubrick to write the script for Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Uh, that's all you got to know, because Barbarella means to be tongue-in-cheek. A lot of people ridicule this movie and say, oh, it's so tacky. No. They're not paying attention. Not paying attention. Not paying attention. Dino De Laurentiis produced. Roger Vadim, who at the time was uh, Jane uh, Fonda's husband. They, uh, they just made one hell of a really cool kitsch classic. I highly recommend Barbarella. The movie does not uh, get old. Also, and Jane Fonda, I'm sorry, ridiculously beautiful uh, and so good in that movie. That whole opening sequence where she's floating around. Oh, it's <laughs> the best! Get, oh my God, I watched it's the best. That. The art direction. I mean, it's the stuff that's shot on stages. Nobody does stages up like that anymore. I mean, it really, it's like otherworldly. It's great. Um, yeah. A movie that I am deeply, deeply fond of is uh, On a Clear Day. You can see forever. Uh, With Barbara Streisand and Yves Montand, directed by Vincent Minnelli, written by Alan J. Lerner of Lerner and Low fame, with a wonderful uh, score uh, uh, supervised and conducted by Nelson Riddle. Um, This is just an absolutely delightful film. It kind of semi-belongs to the Lerner and Low canon, even though uh, Frederick Lowe as a composer did not have anything to do with it. It still sort of feels like it because Alan J. Lerner has a particular feel to his writing. Um, and uh, it's just a lovely, lovely story. It was an original Broadway hit. Yeah. And uh, it's a little bit hard. It's sort of about a therapist session, a therapy session uh, between Barbara Streisand and Eve Montand. Bob Newhart is great in it. He's so good. Uh, and it's, it's basically Eve Montand is a therapist and Barbara Streisand is a chain smoker who's looking for uh, therapy to help her get over her, her smoking. And you think, well, what kind of subject is that for a movie? Well, what it is... It's, a, it's basically an intro. That leads you into the world of hypnosis, which was a thing at the time in 1970. And then you get into all of these past lives and these personalities, and it becomes this really fascinating um, uh, episodic fantasia. And uh, it's just it's absolutely wonderful. Jack Nicholson is in it. Bob Newhart is in it. It's really mag- – it's just a great movie. It's so groovy in that 70s way. Yeah. Uh, Atlantic City. Louis Malle's Atlantic City. What a great movie. movie. Late Burt Lancaster. 
five Oscar nominations, including the first ever Best Actress nomination for Susan Sarandon. Uh, oh, this was that, that scene in the movies with the lemons and the lemon juice. Thank you. So, that, that 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 that's that's on my list for, the, for some of the one of the sexiest and most fantastic scenes so ever good. done, Susan. So good. Uh, Louis Malle, you know, uh, kind of came out of his. I mean, he came, he was the French New Wave director who was not really part of the New Wave. He was kind of apart from it, but. He brought a new wave and a French style and sensibility to this that is just absolutely incomparable. John Guar, the great uh, playwright, wrote a terrific script. Michel Legrand wrote one of his all-time great scores. It's just an absolutely superb film and uh, one of the great films of a great year, 1980, which eventually went giving us, you know, among other things, uh, Ordinary People and The Elephant Man and uh, uh, Melvin and Howard and... Uh, uh, Raging Bull. I mean, what an amazing year that was. And um, this is another one of those great movies from 1980. It's absolutely terrific. Elephant Man, by the way, coming out soon from uh, Criterion. Can't wait oh, on that. Yeah, That's great stuff. And then Michael Caine in Funeral in Berlin, playing Harry Palmer. Uh, one of the great Harry Palmer spy films. This is from uh, 1966. Oh, uh, Harry Hamilton, right? Yeah, uh, uh, directing this one? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Guy Hamilton in his in his kind of Bond mode, in his Bond moment. Uh, yeah, did a great job. I mean, it's it's more hardcore, honest spy stuff, but it's still you know it's still a British spy film. It's great. Uh, yeah, Michael but it has more, more more in common with one of those John Le Carre adaptations. Yes, than, it does. Than an actual it Bond does. movie, you know, more For sure. House than or Smiley's People or something. Like Correct, that. much more so. Uh, really, really fun film. And uh, Eva Renzi was a new actress in this. This was an introducing Eva Renzi thing, and Eva Renzi is just absolutely delightful. If Mark were here, he would call her delicious. <laughs> he would be right. Uh, he would be right. And then uh, the uh, the last of the MOD uh, manufacturer on demand titles is another movie I'm deeply fond of, Angela's Ashes, uh, which is kind of the last great film directed by Alan Parker, who, by the way, is not out of it. He just uh, hasn't directed anything since that horrible. Uh, what was the last thing that he did? That uh, that Kevin Spacey thing, D David Gale, The Life yeah. of David Gale. That thing tanked so hard, it basically ended his career. But before that, he was still doing great work in Angela's Ashes, which is a great uh, novel in 1999. He turned it into a film. It's basically about the struggles of an Irish family, uh, starring Emily Watson and Robert Carlyle, who are both terrific in it. It is, it's impeccable in every conceivable way. It's a big downer. It's a tough film to watch. But, boy, it's really, really well-crafted and beautifully done. And a uh, novel, of course. Yep, uh, depression, uh, depression era Ireland. It's just yeah. it's and and it's, it's autobiographical. It's written by the 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 book by Frank McCourt, who Frank who McCourt, who yeah. novelized his own childhood and his own miserable father and and woebegotten mother. But uh, what a what a great film! What a great film! And then we got uh, just three more Paramount titles here. Uh, one is Pretty in Pink. Oh, which in, in, interesting. Those John Hughes films a couple of years ago. Uh, as we were going through the uh, sort of Me Too and all that kind of stuff moment, as, as I suppose we still are, uh, a lot of the John Hughes films had, were brought under reconsideration, you know? Yep, yep. Molly Ringwald and other folks talking about some of the stuff that was in some of those movies. And, and, and you know, perfectly ac acceptable conversation. But they didn't put me off these movies. Um, I like Pretty in Pink. I always have. And I yep. identify with the Molly Ringwald. You know, a lot of people identify with the Ducky or whoever. But I identify yeah. with that Molly Ringwald character in that movie. Yeah. Uh, same thing with you know some of the other John Hughes films, but um, I don't know. But you know people people have been talking about it, but I I'm not, I'm not put off these movies not at all. No, I like I'm particularly fond of Pretty in Pink. The only thing I didn't like in this movie was that she didn't get with Ducky at the end. Um, yeah. 
hopefully I'm not, not spoiling that. Uh, <laughs> you know, Rosebud, Luke's father. Uh, no, Ducky doesn't win. Yeah, well, no, he doesn't. But, but, uh, stand playing her dad in that movie. Yeah. Um, uh, he was just wonderful in that movie. All he wanted was to make his baby girl happy. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it was, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I just adored that movie. If you had told me when this movie came out that, uh, John Cryer would have the most enduring career of those three, <laughs> I would have told you you were crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, James Spader, Anthony McCarthy, you know, these, these were all, what did they call them, the Brat Pack or something? What, it was the, it was the Brat Pack at the time, Molly yeah. Ringwald. I, I, but John Cryer, for crying out loud, he's Lex Luthor in the Arrowverse. I don't know yeah. how that happened. <laughs> I don't. Not that long run on television, two and a uh, half men, Sheen, and then yeah. and then even longer when um uh, the other kid took over that show. I mean, yeah. he's just never been out and made a few great movies too. By the way, the Pop yeah. of Love, uh, John yeah. Pryor, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 Career Opportunities, which I think was also a John Hughes film. Yes, uh, back in the nineties, and yeah, still still banging them out, and kind of looks the same, John Pryor, and he does, like he does, and of course the movie was directed by Howard Deutsch. Yeah. Uh, we should, we should, we should emphasize the, the significance of, uh, of Howard Deutsch in this. It was, it was written by John Hughes, but it's, so it's technically a John Hughes film, but it was written by Howard Deutsch, who of course is very famous today as the father of Zoe Deutsch. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, um, isn't that weird? Zoe Deutsch is now, I just can't, I feel I bet he didn't see that coming. No, did not. Anyway. It is, uh, and this is a Paramount Presents title. It is Volume Six, and then we've got a couple of Steel Books. Now there are three big Steel Books that have been released. We we don't yet have the Braveheart Steel Book. That's on its way, but uh, the the there it, we do have the twentieth anniversary edition four K Ultra HD Steel Book of Gladiator, which I just can't get enough of. Um, there's it, this is not significantly different from what's been released previously of Gladiator on 4K. It's basically the same transfer with uh, pretty much all the all the same extras. Uh, however, so there's not necessarily a reason to to double dip or upgrade or anything. But if you don't yet have it, it's you know it's a steel book. It's nice to have on the shelf. And uh, and Gladiator in 4K is just rip snorting. It is unbelievable if you have a fully loaded decked out system. And I. The first thing I did when I loaded up the 4K system and I got all the speakers hooked up and the subwoofer going, I go straight to Gladiator just to watch the opening battle because it will tax the speakers and tell me just how good it is. And man, it just, if you got neighbors, they will complain. If, <laughs> if, 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 uh, if there's a police precinct near, nearby, they will show up. Gladiator will bring the world to your doorstep. Uh, the other, uh, the other uh, steel book is Friday the 13th, the 40th anniversary limited edition on Blu-ray, not 4K. That's the only disappointment here is that this should have been on uh, on 4K. But, you know, uh, it's fine. Uh, we forget that this had Kevin Bacon in it. I always yeah. forget that. I always forget that. Wow. Bloody hell, Kevin Bacon was in Friday the 13th. Um... Yeah, I never liked this film, but a lot of people do, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna unload on you. This was also one of the films of 1980, not one of the Oscar contenders, obviously, but uh, you know, it basically was a ripoff of Halloween at the time that wound up becoming a franchise unto itself. Nobody yeah. associate nobody associates uh, Michael Myers anymore with um, uh, what's his face. Oh, uh, 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 there's well, let's see, Michael Myers. 
Uh, it's the guy. It's a kid from Halloween. You yeah, got, I was gonna. I was gonna say Freddy. Freddy. Freddy is Freddy Krueger. 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 No, it's, it's not it's Freddy Krueger. Elm, Elm Street. He's the monster uh, from Elm Street. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Jason. The, Jason Voorhees. Jason. 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 Jason Voorhees. Voorhees. Thank you. So again, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees. Nobody associates those two anymore. They are, you know, they are kindred. But in the end, ultimately, I think Jason wound up getting the better of it because he made those Freddy versus Jason movies. Yeah. So there it is. So that's our, that's our that's our Paramount list. I got uh, uh I got some of the new movies queued up if you want to talk about a few yeah. of those. Yeah, let's do it. Uh including Jesus Rolls. Jesus Rolls, John Turturro. Um, oh my god writing here. This is a character, uh, of course, that that spun off from the, the movie The Big Lebowski that and, he played. And, and, and I don't know, this did not work for me so much. What do you what do you think? It it it, it didn't work. And you know, I, I I keyed in on something very odd when I was I had to cover this on radio, and I saw that Bertrand Blier got a story credit. And the Cohen brothers had a story credit. And I said, okay, the only reason the Cohen's get a credit is because they wrote the original movie. They wrote the Big Lebowski. Why is Bertrand Blier French director who's never doesn't he, I mean I interviewed Bertrand Blier, he doesn't speak a word of English. Why on earth would he be involved? And then I realized what it was. Um, the, this is basically a remake of, uh, one of Blier's films called, um, uh, going, uh, going places, mm-hmm. which was, which was a kind of a, kind of a, a road farce about two guys and a girl. It was, it was Miu Miu and Gerard Depardieu and Patrick DeWare. Oh yeah. And, and, um, and, and, and it was a sexy little thing in the seventies. And for whatever reason, John Turturro decided I'm going to take my character from the big Lebowski and I'm going to remake Bertrand Blier's little 70s uh, road trip sex farce using Jesus, the child molesting bowler. I don't know how that I don't know how that ever fit in his head, but that's what this movie is. And it's kind of weird. Well, here's the thing. The child molesting bowler cannot be the hero of my movie. (laughs) I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to root for that guy. Uh, so, so that that was kind of a, a you know a tough a tough sort of call. Anyway, uh, interesting sort of amalgamation of things. There anything on that uh, that that DVD? Or is it just the, or is it just the movie? It's 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 basically the movie. There's an audio commentary that he does with Bobby Cannavale, who's who's his co-star. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, this is just a he calls a lot of favors in. Man, there are cameos galore. Christopher Walken and. And Susan Sarandon and John Hamm all show up. The trio here is is basically uh, Turturro, uh, Bobby Cannavale, and Audrey Tattoo. And um, you know, Audrey Tattoo is sweet. Is she Mew Mew? Kind of. Um, uh, but uh, on balance, it's it's just a really it's a peculiar film. It's very unusual. Yeah. I mean, I, I I hate to rip on it because I really love The Big Lebowski, but this was a very strange kind of semi sequel. Yeah, yeah, uh, odd little take there. But boy, but boy, uh, interesting little movie, Tyler, Tyler Kornak movie, uh, about this detective uh, who's also an alcoholic. And, uh, he, you know, he goes to AA, he gets himself assigned to a sponsor, a sponsor named Chip. Mm-hmm. Chip becomes the suspect in an investigation for uh, of, of a missing kid. Now, this is all sort of wacky in and of itself, but the wackiest thing about it is... Uh, the cop starts to believe that people are disappearing, literally up Chip's butt. <laughs> That's the title. Uh, in, in any case, it's kind of a wacky movie, uh, a comedy. It's kind of kind of sci-fi kind of thing going on. Anything on that uh, DVD? <laughs> no. uh, yes, it comes with a butt. 
Um, <laughs> no, there's a there's a commentary and a trailer and, and a featurette. There's otherwise nothing on it really. Uh, and and thank goodness <laughs> because it's a str- wow, that's plenty for sure. Then oh we my have goodness! It's called Spy Intervention that came out. Uh, well, actually, this year. Uh, it's kind of a comedy, and it's about this uh, world's greatest Bondian sort of spy uh, who sort of falls in love with, with this woman and decides to abandon his career as a spy, but the spy world don't want to let him go. Uh, so the adventures keep coming, even though all he wants to do is hang out with his, with his girl and eat quiche. Uh, a cute little movie um, uh, that, that, I, that I happened to see and rather enjoyed. And, did, did you uh, see Emma? I did see Emma. Let me pull it out. Yeah, I did, Emma's... Not, I did not see Emma. Interesting that it came out. I mean, there are a lot of incarnations of Emma. So many incarnations. Well, we haven't had one since the Gwyneth Paltrow version. And uh, I got to say, I think I, as much as I love that one, and I really do love that one, I think this is the definitive. Oh. Um, it, it really is. There's a, you know, Emma is a little bit different from all of Jane Austen's other stuff in that it really is lighter and more farcical. It's almost Jane Austen verging on Oscar Wilde in a way. And I think there's so much uh, about it that, that has never been done correctly. There was also another version of Emma that was done for British television back, I think, late 80s, early 90s. And um, this is just delightful. Uh, directed by Autumn DeWilde, who clearly, who, with whom I'm not at all familiar as a director, but who clearly understands the material on a level that um, it has been missing for a long time. She clearly understands just exactly where to modulate the comedy and the romance and to really crank it up. And I think as a result, this winds up being just the most delightful version of Emma I've ever seen. And I've seen those two previous ones, and I think there was another one. Uh, I'm thinking of Clueless. Clueless is, uh, is ah, Emma yes, as well, yes, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, but, but between the uh, the British TV version and the uh, and this one and the, uh, the 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 previous one with Gwyneth Paltrow, this far and away is the most delightful. It's got deleted scenes, gag reel, and some featurette stuff on it, plus a commentary that is uh, is revealing, but probably not as revealing as as I would have hoped. But nonetheless. It's really fun. And uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, let's just emphasize it. Anya Taylor-Joy, who is a total unknown, who plays Emma, is going to be a huge star. She is going to be huge. Fabulous. Really a, a great film. Also comes with uh, Movies Anywhere, so you can add it to your, uh, your Voodoo or whatever, your Movies Anywhere account, and you can w- stream it anytime you want. Make yourself feel better. It's a wicked, lot of wicked. fun. I saw this uh, Michael Winterbottom film, Greed, with Steve uh, Coogan. Uh, you know, Michael Winterbottom and, and, and Steve, uh, of course, do all of those trip uh, tooth movies. Uh, with who is it? Um, Robert, uh, I, yeah, I forget the, the name of the guy. Those movies. And, and those movies are, are really, really clever and funny if they roam around the countryside. I think the last one was Trip to Italy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. In this, in this film, Michael Winterbottom is playing this character, sort of like, you know, uh, greedy, Trump-esque sort of character with these bleached white teeth, teeth and, and he's, he's a billionaire, but he's not really a billionaire because he's always losing money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he's, and he's, and he's going to throw himself this gigantic party. You know, the, the, the problem that I had with this movie, it's a satire, of course, is that it, it wards politics a little too much on its sleeve. Yeah, I did. I thought so too. For my taste. It's just, I mean, it's all just right there and well, that makes it just less clever. It, you know what? I, I've seen a, a, a few of these lately and um, where they are, and, and, and I'm going to talk about one on Film Week uh, this week as well, 
where you, you kind of feel like, okay, you haven't been watching the news because I'm already owed. I'm, I'm getting an overdose of this excess on my nightly news. Mm. I don't need it dramatized because then it's like a sugar high that just becomes diabetes. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's too much. I, I, if you're going to satirize something, it needs to do something. Like the news is a satire of itself these days, more often yeah, than not. Exactly, so exactly. I, you really cannot satirize what's, what's, what's going you, on you, you, in, in any context. It's just, it is what it actually is. Yeah, especially during the pandemic. So I, I kind of felt like, yeah, it just needed, it needed to be a little breezier, a little bit, a little take, make, go a little askew, be a little weirder, <laughs> a little more offbeat. It didn't really go there, but, uh, my, you know, he's look. Uh, he's, Coogan is still a really, really great actor and a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, a lot of uh, there's a whole lot of uh, improvisation in in all of these movies. Um, and and the thing about this movie, Steve, it really is funny. I mean, just about everything that comes out of his mouth is is funny. But everybody else is improvising too. Yeah. And and sometimes you get, you you don't you, the scenes aren't even coherent. It's hard to figure out what the hell they're even talking about because you know nobody's on any script at all. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, anything on that, by the way. Uh, not, not, not particularly. Uh, there's, there's a deleted scene and a vignette. That's it. Yeah, man. Uh, Robert the Bruce, uh, story of Robert the Bruce. Um, interesting. Uh, Robert Bruce, of course, uh, was crowned King of the Scots in the 14th century. Interesting. Um, the way the story of, sometimes he's a villain. Sometimes he's a hero. It kind of depends on your point of view. Um, uh, he's, he's, you know, it's, I, I, I suppose the folks saw Mel Gibson. Uh, what's the Mel Gibson movie? Uh, Braveheart. 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 Uh, and I was hoping, I, and I was hoping we'd get the steelbook of Braveheart so we could talk about it because, um, in, in point of fact, this is kind of, this is like, this is, it's funny that we're talking about this the same week as, um, uh, the Jesus Rolls because this is a similar kind of a thing. It's a spinoffy sequel of a, an earlier movie many years later with the same actor playing the same part. Mm. And, and that's what I, what I thought was really kind of uh, odd and unusual about this is, is that Angus McFadden all these years later is once again playing Robert the Bruce uh, in a movie that's not really all that good <laughs> compared to Braveheart. But anyway, it's, it's Angus McFadden who played Robert the Bruce in Braveheart, still playing the part. Interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Is that all? Is that all we have over? In well, New let's see. Sp spy intervention. We started to talk about spy intervention, and we should we should make a, a mention about spy intervention. As long as we're talking about spy films, this is um, a really cool little low budget, uh, but not too low budget. I mean, it's got some decent production value. This is like a spy satire, but it's a fun one, and it's one that's actually uh, really, really very well done. In that it's it's not trying to be like. Um, uh, Gosh, all the spy satires, whether it's uh, Austin Powers or uh, you know oh, any those, or those those wonderful French ones, the the OSS one seventeen. Yeah, it's not it's it's not doing that. It's kind of trying to split the difference. It's trying to be a, a both a spy spoof, but also one that takes it seriously at the same time. And uh, as a result, it's a it winds up being completely fresh and totally unique. And uh, they made it with not an awful lot of money, but it's still it's it's totally engaging. Uh, it, it's, a you know, it's about a super spy and, uh, his, his, his romance and, um, how do I not re reveal some of this stuff? There's a, I mean, obviously there's a villain and a super plot, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a diabolical plan that has to be un unwound, but, uh, 
it, it, the fact that it wraps that up in what is effectively a romance, a, a kind of screwball romantic comedy at the same time, is what sets this aside. And uh, it's very, very cleverly written. And uh, that's from Cynodyme on DVD, Spy Intervention, starring Drew Van Acker and Poppy Delavigne. Uh, so, you know, so you're not, you, you haven't heard any of these people, but you're, you're going to, they're all very mm. cool. Uh, the hunt, uh, oh, yeah. film that you know, basically 12 strangers, they wake up in this field, this sort of clearing. They have no idea where they are, how they got there. Uh, but all they find out very quickly is that they are going to be, uh, the, the subjects of a hunt. Uh, this is a pretty uh, intense movie. Um, a theme in, a, in films that's popped up one or two times before. You know, people who are being hunted by you know some 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 folks who have the ability to do whatever the hell they want, and they get tired of hunting big big uh, big game. They decided they want to hunt people. Uh, Craig Zobel directing this film, uh, and it's actually okay. Damian Lindoff is one of the writers. Um, Craig and Damien, uh, well, Damien's one of the creators of the Leftover series, and, and some, of, some of the best episodes, I love that entire series, but some of the best episodes were directed by Craig Zobel. Um, uh, he also knocks off one or two of uh, the Westworlds that I, that I really thoroughly in, in, enjoyed. So this is him, you know, working back in feature mode, uh, making a fairly interesting movie. Uh, a lot of social commentary, obviously, going on inside that film. Um, let's see. I did not see uh, Gretel and Hansel. Did you? Did yeah, that? I sure did. Unfortunately, let me uh, let me get into that, and I'll. Uh, as long as I'm talking on that, I'm just going to hit a, hit a little bit of horror here, just generally. Um, Gretel and Hansel is an attempt to take the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale of the Grimm brothers Grimm, which is small, and turn it into something much bigger than a small fairy tale, and it's it's really creepy. Uh, the style is very effective. The story makes absolutely zero sense at all. None. <laughs> uh, it makes no sense. Like, it's not clear where this takes place. I mean, look, I, I absolutely love Sophia Lillis of, of It fame, who is uh, delightful. She plays Gretel in this. And, and she carries the film. She's the only really great thing about it. Otherwise, it, it takes place in some strange country that's, I don't know... Like 18th century America, 17th century Europe, it's not clear. It's just, mm. they're all different accents all over the place, and it's very weird and gothic and, you know, kind of semi-medieval. And uh, she and her brother uh, wind up having to, to flee into the woods uh, after family tragedy, and they wind up Basically, I mean, is it a witch or what is it they stumble upon? Yeah. They come upon a house where there's like a zombie. I don't know. None of it makes sense. It's just a sequence of weird happenings that are so disjointed and they never really come together. And then in the end, there's some kind of weird occultish thing happening in the house. And I, I mean, I won't tell you how it ends, but I mean, maybe. I don't know. It, it, it didn't work for me in any way at all. Um Got a couple of uh, uh, Shudder horror titles here on Steelbook that we should probably make a quick mention of. Uh, one of them is Tigers Are Not Afraid. And Tigers Are Not Afraid is um, is a Mexican horror film that is that uses the backdrop of Mexico's drug wars to uh, tell what is effectively a J-horror story of children and ghosts. And uh, you got these orphaned kids who are haunted by ghosts 
that um all right i'm not gonna i'm not gonna uh, and that's as much as I'll tell you. But yeah. but the, yeah, it's 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 kids fighting ghosts, and it has a connection to the drug wars, and um, it's really really horrifying. Uh, it's a little bit it 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 don't watch it with the lights on. Let me put it that way. Watch mm. watch this one with the lights on. Um, this has some really decent special features in it. There's an interview with Guillermo del Toro, um, who is kind of championing a lot of films like this. Uh, and and how the film was made, casting sessions, uh, deleted scenes. So that stuff is is nice. And then there is one cut of the dead, which is a completely unhinged zombie movie um, that uh, it, it would be J horror if it weren't. Uh, it's Japanese, but yet it seems to draw more on American stuff, which is kind of strange and peculiar. Um, but this is uh, completely unhinged. Asian zombie movies tend to be really great, like especially the Korean ones. Train to Busan is terrific. It reinvented the zombie genre in ways that made it completely fresh that even World War Z was not doing. I don't know that One Cut of the Dead does that. It's a little bit more satirical than anything else. It's set, it basically uses a zombie movie as the backdrop. Like these, these people are shooting a zombie movie in this remote location, and um, the zombie movie dovetails into an actual zombie incident. I won't tell you how that happens, but it, it, what's funny is once that happens, the director will not stop shooting. He decides <laughs> I've got we got to keep rolling on this because it's just it's just too good, and uh, and and then it just goes weird and and uh, it goes into so many different directions you can't expect it. None of which makes sense, but some of which are pretty damn funny, and the other uh, directions are are weird enough to still be scary. So one cut of the dead. It's almost impossible to sort of explain. It's like an actual zombie movie crossed with Shaun of the Dead, crossed with that uh, Jim Jarmish thing that we just had. It's yeah. kind of it sort of splits the difference between all three of those, and that's uh, also a Shutter title. One cut of the dead, and the other one is uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. All right, let's see what else we got. I've got some uh, Criterion's queued up. Oh yes, let's do the Criterion's. Uh, beginning, oh. with, uh, beginning with uh, uh, the, the Cameraman, 1928. Oh, uh, Buster so Keaton, good. Uh, Uncredited, but Buster Keaton uh, directing Edward Sedgwick uh, gets the major credit on that show. So, uh, you know, the, the Cameraman, an absolutely um, wonderful uh, MGM uh, uh, classic uh, of Buster Keaton. It is. It's great. It's fantastic. Anything, 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 anything special Tons. on that criteria? I mean, it's a criterion, so it's got to have something. Oh, it's just so much. There's, uh, there's a... Um, uh, uh, the original audio commentary by John Benson and Jeffrey Vance from 2004 that, that was previously recorded for previous releases of this, that's on here. There's uh, a really great new documentary called Time Travelers, um, which uh, also incorporates Bankston and, and Vance. Um, there's a 2004 documentary by Kevin Brownlow and Christopher Bird. Uh, that is all about Buster Keaton and MGM, which is wonderful. Kevin Brownlow, of course, the legendary silent film scholar who wrote the David Lean biography and with whom I've, I've had some wonderful phone conversations. Um, and then uh, the Motion Picture Camera, which is a 1979 documentary. Uh, those are all absolutely terrific. And then you also get an interview with James Nebar, who is the author of The Fall of Buster Keaton. Uh, it's great. The whole thing is great. The Cameraman has been released two or three times, but this is this is the only one you need to have. Ah. 
An Unmarried Woman, 1978, Paul Mazur's yes. film with Jill Clayburg and Michael and Alan Bates and Michael oh. Murphy. Uh, just a wonderful sort of look, Woody Allen-esque uh, is, is the way a lot of folks. But Paul Mazur yeah. really had a different sensibility altogether than Woody Allen. For sure. Uh, it's, it's more serious, uh, uh, but still funny. Uh, uh, a little bit darker. Um, uh, she is, this is about a wealthy woman, uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan, and she's just dealing with her sexuality and her identity, and, uh, and, and her husband leaves her for a younger woman. It's just a, it's, it's going through a transit. It's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. Great Paul Mazursky. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, didn't we give him an award at the Los Angeles Film Critic Award? Yeah, yeah. What, what was yep. that? With, uh, that, was the, that was the Career Achievement Award. It was before he died, and uh, I was the one who actually put him up, by the way. I was the one who yeah. nominated him for that um ray and uh lynn clady and i all kind of got together and said it's time and lynn clady uh is the one who presented him the award that evening because lynn was a lifelong friend of mazursky so it was personal to him too and look mazursky is one of the sort of seminal figures of my filmmaking uh adolescence you know i i went from once i discovered grown-up movies i discovered paul mazursky movies yeah and uh, Tempest, you know, is the one that just, just shattered me. And then you go back and you discover things like An Unmarried Woman and you discover things like Bob, uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and, yeah. and, and Harry and Tonto and, and everything else. And, and you realize that um, what Mazursky was doing really was he was this – is, this is a guy who had a very, very certain middle-class sensibility. And he realized that the American middle class – was uh, shown typically through rose-colored glasses in the movies. And he said, you know what, that's not how these people live. I'm going to show you how they really live. I'm going to show you what really what their anxieties are, what their sexuality is, um, what their fears are, um, how they laugh, how ridiculous they can be, but also how human and wonderful they can be. Paul yeah. Mazursky is sort of the great revelator of the American middle class of the 60s and 70s. That's how I always see him, and he's he, an unmarried woman is just pitch perfect in there. And this was, of course, one of the the the, the great films of 1978, which gave us also many many other great films. Uh, Paul, of, of course, worked as much as an actor as he did as a director. Sometimes probably he more. He probably has more acting credits than he does directing credits. Yeah, he's actually in Stanley Kubrick's very very first film, Fear and Desire. Uh, uh, Fear and Desire. That's Paul Mazursky in that movie. Yeah. Uh, Husbands, 1970, uh, another another sort of uh, auteur director, uh, John Cassavetes writing and directing, and, and in the movie with Ben Gazar and Peter Falk, uh, these guys, um, uh, a friend of theirs dies. It kind of throws them all for a loop. Uh, and they and they go wandering off into the middle. And, and really, it's uh, it's that classic sort of uh, John Cassavetes style of, of almost cinema verite filmmaking. Um, um, uh, way well before there were steady cams, um, he, he he kept his his, his cameras handheld. Yeah, uh, big close-ups, uh, raucous, raucous uh, uh, sort of street scenes where people didn't even know that a movie was being made. Uh, that was the sort of world of uh, real independent filmmaking that John Cassavetes came out of. This is this is a long movie. This is a two-hour. This is a two-hour-plus movie. Uh, it, it's it's both comedy and drama, but mostly sort of drama. Uh, black and white. Um, uh, really, really interesting work from, from John Cassavetes. Uh, anything on, on, on there that we should be aware of? There is only uh, the 2009 audio commentary and then some new interviews and some uh, video essay stuff. There, there's also like a television tribute to John Cassavetes uh, and then an episode of the Dick Cavett Show. 
it's all i mean it's fine it's all fine it's not it's all really deep the the marshall fine audio commentary is the really really crucial thing and the dick cavett show is fun it's fun yeah yeah you can you never go wrong with the dick cavett show yeah i remember talking about paul dano's i think the, the debut uh directing debut film uh wildlife yeah uh, um, with, with Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, um, uh, Zoe Kazan, and, and, and Paul Dano writing the screenplay. I love this film. I love very, this film. Very, very interesting film. Um, uh, complicated relationship between this husband and wife to have this little boy. Um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, the father, sort of abandons them, and, and he goes off to take these sort of ridiculous jobs. He doesn't really work at all. And it's all about Carrie Mulligan's uh, sort of response to all of this. Yep. And 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 I, get, I think the kid's name is um, Ed Oxenbull is the little boy, and how he sort of has to deal with this bizarre behavior going on between his mother and his father. Very very interesting uh, screenplay. Very good, interesting filmmaking from Paul Dano. I, I think it's superb. I think Paul Dano shows incredible maturity as a filmmaker in this. You know, he and Zoe Kazan are a real life couple, and and they wrote it together. And it's based on a novel, and they worked at this for years and years and years. It's a real labor of love uh, for them both, and. Uh, I think it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful film, and there's and, and this, the the symbolism of the of the fire, the forest fire that Jake Gyllenhaal is fighting, is a wonderful metaphor that just drives through the whole film. It's really a superb picture, and I gosh, I hope people let Paul Dano do some more directing because he's really good at it. Yeah, um, you know, Tokyo Olympiad is out too. Uh, the the fantastic, brilliant Kan Ichikawa film from 1965 which was supposed to coincide with this year's Tokyo Olympiad, which has now been pushed to next year. Yeah. So uh, Criterion chose not to not to push it and to just uh, let this one come out. I, I so think we need the Olympics. i got to be honest. I think so much of the unrest in the world, the steam will be let off when people can watch the Olympics again and athletes can do what they do. And I, I think having having them next year will be absolutely wonderful. Um, mm. that'll, that'll bring the world a little bit back to some sense of, of sanity and and togetherness. Um, but that still being said, this is a great film, an extraordinary film. And, Doctor uh, the 1964 Olympics, obviously. Yes. Uh, yeah. From, from the year before. And, and it is, you know, the prior, the only prior significant feature documentary made about any Olympics was Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympia, which is viewed as, you know, largely Nazi regime propaganda, despite the fact that it is an extraordinary piece of filmmaking with amazing groundbreaking cinematography and techniques for capturing the, the coverage of sports. And, uh, That's what, 36 Olympics? That would have been 36, 36 Olympics. 36, yeah. 36 Olympics. So Connie Chikawa said, I will see you and raise you, Lenny Riefenstahl. And he decided to just go all out with his style. And uh, it, is, it is really, really remarkable. He, by the way, does not cast anyone in any particular glorious light. This is about the athletes, not the politics, not the nations. And uh, so, you know, you wind up basic. I mean, the, 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 the high point of this film is the, uh, is the, the, the marathon run of uh, Abibi Bikila, the, mm. Ethiopi the Ethiopian gold medalist. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's a wonderful moment to have an Ethiopian medalist honored stylistically by a great Japanese filmmaker. There's something really extraordinary about that that is truly the Olympic spirit to me. So, uh, great thing. It's got a new documentary about Ichikawa uh, with all kinds of great interviews in it, uh, including his camera operator, who will tell you some incredible stories. Uh, and his son is interviewed here as well, uh, Tatsumi Ichikawa. And a great new introduction by Peter Cowley, who, uh, whose, whose original 2001 audio commentary is also included. But the new introduction is great, too. So, it's, it's fantastic.
just absolutely fantastic. Tokyo Olympiad, Connie Chikawa on Blu-ray, baby. Mm. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Is this is this the 2019 yeah. Portrait of a Lady yeah, on this, Fire? Yeah, this is the new criterion. one. Just Already criterion. Yeah. Oh, yep. Celine Great. Schema, of course, a wonderful story. Uh, female painter, uh, this sort of beautiful lesbian love affair. It's just a, just an absolutely exquisite movie. I'm, did we I'm give this? Did we give this our cinematography award? I think we did, didn't we? I, I believe that we did. I believe yeah, we did. I think we did. Uh, Valerie Galino and. Uh, Naomi Moran, you you you're better with all the yeah. I mean, this is I'm sure it's all kinds of stuff on that DVD. It's 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 great. Uh, Noemi Merlant and Adele Ayanel are the uh, the stars. It is uh, it is a very beautiful, poetic love story, wonderfully photographed, uh, very tenderly told, and um, you know you got to get it. Uh, it was one of the great films of last year and the Cannes Film Festival, and uh, it just got overshadowed a little bit by Parasite, which also made the journey from Cannes to the Oscars and was distributed by the same company, Neon. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it shouldn't hide in, uh, in Parasite's shadow. It, it deserves a little light of its own. So uh, yeah. there's also a really interesting cinematographer interview from uh, 2019. The cinematographer, by the way, also a woman, Claire Mathon, uh, who does a great, great job here. So really, really good. And then the last criterion is Scorsese Shorts. Yeah, what's, what, what's, what's up with that stuff? What's well, that? somebody decided to do a Blu-ray of the of Martin Scorsese wearing shorts. No. <laughs> no. No, that's not what it is. Uh, it's Martin Scorsese wearing Bermuda shorts for two hours. No, it's uh, it's actually four shorts that Martin Scorsese made. Uh, actually, five. I'm sorry. There's five. And um, uh, they're all digitally restored. And uh, they include Italian American from 1974, American Boy from 1978, The Big Shave from 1967, It's Not Just You, Murray from 1964, and What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This in 1963. Um, the one that everybody's heard of, of course, is Amer Italian American from 1974 because it coincides in roughly the same period as everything else in the movies that is Italian American at that time, from you know Scorsese's films like Mean Streets and. And uh, Taxi Driver to Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Pacino, De Niro. You know, it was a moment in Coppola. It was a moment when Italian-American actors and filmmakers were really, really emerging. So that one is, is somewhat famous. The other four yeah. are not so much. Um, it's not just you, Murray. I've never even heard of. I haven't even no. heard of it. It's, it's 16 minutes long. Uh, I've never even heard of it. And What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This is very, very short. It's 10 minutes. It's just a you know a very experimental thing. So those two are almost negligible. The shortest, however, is the Big Shave, which is five minutes, and um, very interesting. I'll just leave that with you. I, I won't tell you anything about it. It's totally worth watching. Um, really worth watching. But uh, American Boy was the was uh, is very interesting. That's the longest of them in about an hour, and yeah. um, I, I almost resent that they're calling that a short because it's a borderline feature. But it's um, it's a it's a it's a it's really good. It's really really good. Um, but the Big Shave is 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 pretty wild. It's it, it, it has interesting uh, to see to watch. Uh, you know, these are all would have to be what early 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 middle sixties. Early so, 60s, early 60s, in the most part. Yeah, early 60s to early 70s. It would be interesting to, to watch Martin Scorsese's work uh, from that period as he's sort of honing, uh, you know, the person, the filmmaker that he would ultimately become. Uh, yeah, I, I guess my first uh, feature Martin Scorsese film that I remember seeing in, in, in the boxcar Bertha. Uh, yeah. Maybe, then, and then you yeah. sort of uh, work your way forward from there. 
All right, I want to hit some Arrow titles really quickly here. Uh, Tim, I know you're you're uh, you're going to want to weigh in on a, on some of these too. Um, first one I'm going to hit here is uh, a Kirill Sokolov film. Why don't you just die? Uh, <laughs> this is this is a completely bizarre Russian comedy. It's very Coen Brothers like. Um, Kirill Sokolov uh, included his entire original storyboard for this in a BD ROM portion of the disc, and it's fascinating to look at because he followed his storyboards like mad. This is a director who religiously mapped this movie out like an animator. Basically, the whole thing takes place in an apartment. It is completely unhinged. It reminds me a little bit of like the Coen brothers meet Janae and Caro. It's like delicatessen <laughs> crossed with it's like delicatessen crossed with raising Arizona. So here's what's going on. You've got this guy who went out with a girl who basically dared him to kill her father. Uh, or so we think, right? And and so he shows up, uh, and, and the dad turns out to be a cop. He's a Russian cop, and he's a really mean dude. And, oh, so you're my daughter's boyfriend. And, of course, he starts to chicken out. Well, next thing you know... Everything goes off the rails. By the end of this thing, you've got guns, knives, people you didn't even expect to show up, flashbacks about things that you had no idea happened. There's blood on the carpet, people knocking on the door, uh, people getting chained up in the bathroom. It is completely out of control. It's a fun, weird, unhinged, brain-bending movie. Why don't you just die? Meeting the parents doesn't go smoothly. Uh, so that's that's got a ton of special features. It's from Arrow. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's got this, uh, um, it's got like a, like a, a featurette and, and an interview with, uh, Kim Newman about the, this kind of filmmaking where you have one location and all this crap happens. Um, and then a bunch of other featurette stuff. You've also got Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which was uh, yeah. the feature, remember this, the feature film version of Elvira from, uh, 1992. What, what what year was this? That, that, that series was in the middle eighties, so that would have to be in the early nineties. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when this came out. I should have checked it up before the show, but anyway, uh, actually, a lot of fun. It's it's stupid, but it's fun. And uh, directed by James Signorelli, who did a lot of schlock at the time. And uh, it, I, I just enjoy who shows up in this movie: Jeff Conway, Sally Kellerman, uh, Edie McClurg. I mean, all these people just show up and have a great time uh, on screen. It's it's actually a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and it doesn't. It's you know it's Elvira for crying out loud. It's Cassandra Peterson doing her doing her shtick and uh, making fun of herself and and why not? So well well done on that one. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fun stuff in here. The 2017 commentary that Signorelli did with uh, the uh, with one of the uh, editors of of uh, Fangoria, and then some making of stuff and some uh, archival material. So if you're a fan of the movie. Friend of the character, you'll have a good time with it. Uh, White Fire is a movie by Jean-Marie Palardy, which has one of the most eclectic casts I've ever seen. This is um, this is an oh, un. This is a very Fred Williamson in that movie. I know, right? It's it's like Fred Williamson shows up in the most unexpected places sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and the thing is, Palardy is a is a is a French erotic filmmaker. Now, if you had said to me a French erotic filmmaker would make a movie with Fred Williamson, I would have said what. Uh, how does, how, how, how does, how, you know, it's like the hammer is going to do like a, like French erotica. I don't, does that, is there a gun involved? I don't understand. Uh, the hammer like comes and messes people up. But anyway, the, um, basically this is about jewel thieves 
um, trying to uh, steal a, a diamond that is known as white fire. And uh, the, the way the plan unleashes is bizarre and weird and outrageous and goes into all kinds of very, very strange, um, uh, very strange tangents. One of which involves Fred Williamson. Um, uh, it's very, very peculiar. There's, there's a hooker in here and the hooker winds up being more mysterious than the diamond. It's very, very weird. Um, it, the, so the, the poster, the poster for this, I don't know, I don't know what's on the DVD, but the poster yeah. for the movie was just insane. A guy with a chainsaw and these people with the, the guts. I mean, it's just so. Yeah, you know, no, that's that's not here. Fun. This this is a diamond that has a bunch of weapons stuck in it. It's probably they probably should have used the other one. <laughs> um, and then we've got Blood Tide, which is a Nico Mustarakis film. Um, Ooh, with I remember that with James Earl Jones and Jose Ferrer. Uh, it takes all takes place on a Greek island. Uh, a little bit of a mystery going on, and there's some, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of figure out what uh, what possible ancient things have been. You know, is there, are there ghosts? And there's a, there's a bit of a kind of a an occultic um, thing happening, and uh, it, it goes again in directions you don't necessarily expect, but. Um, you know, I, I think it dates a little bit poorly. It was made in the '80s. It kind of looks like it, but it still has some really good performances. James Earl Jones is great, and there's Spyros in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also have uh, talking about um, John Hughes' Sixteen Candles from Arrow. Mm -hmm. A uh, wonderful new version of 16 Candles, beautifully transferred from a 4K scan of the original negative. Brand new. It's never looked this beautiful. The film ages in some ways that are not favorable to it. Um, right, that discussion that we had before. Of course, John directed and wrote this one, as opposed to He Adam, did. You know. Precisely, yep. Uh, and this was this was a big thing at, at the time. You know, it, John, John Hughes kind of launched his career with this. And Molly Ringwald more or less launched her career with this. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's 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 not even that it's not PC. It just it kind of some of the jokes date in a way that isn't uh, necessarily favorable. But nonetheless, it is a seminal film for a certain generation. Has tons of extras on it, and uh, I'm still going to give this a good recommendation. It's got it's it's worth it's worth watching again. It has. Um, Two different versions of it, one of which is two minutes longer. This was has the additional cafeteria scene, uh, but they, you know, uh, it, not that, that makes a whole lot of difference. And then we've got Beyond the Door, which is uh, a horror film that has both uh, a booklet and tons and tons and tons of extras on it. Uh, this is from 1974 from Ovidio G. Asonitis. I wouldn't call it quite a giallo film. Uh, it, it, it's kind of. Um, it's kind of trying to take off on The Exorcist and on uh, Rosemary's Baby. Maybe, it's kind yeah. of yeah, it's kind of trying to be in that same in that same moment. It's it's gross, it's nasty, but you know what? It's uh, as far as a, a, Italian giallo ish occult films of the 1970s go, it's probably one of the most famous ones, not directed by Dario Argento. So yeah. for people who love that kind of thing, there it is. Uh, and then the last two here, uh, we also have, uh, as far as we're talking, as long as we're talking about, you know, gore and whatnot, we have uh, Pollyanna McIntosh as the woman, oh, which yeah. is by which is by Lucky McKee, who's one of the better low-budget American horror directors. Our good friend Luke Thompson knows Lucky and has actually been in some of Lucky's movies. Uh, there's a, there's commentary by Lucky McKee on this, and uh, tons and tons and tons of making of featurettes and interviews and music videos and the usual stuff. But uh, the film itself is pretty standard Lucky McKee stuff. Pollyanna McIntosh is uh, the last member of a cannibal clan 
who's uh, been roaming around the American, you know, wilderness and uh, winds up stumbling across a hunter played by Sean Bridgers. And uh, I won't tell you what goes after there, but, you know, it, it's it, it, he wants to try to civilize her. I'm going to tell you, it ain't going to work quite so well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then and then the last one is The Wind, uh, also by Nico Mastarakis. Uh, the Wind is, um, you know, so-so. It's kind of a, it's, it's sort of a, a horror slashery 80s thing. It also doesn't age terribly well, but it has a bit of a cult following. Um, and uh, it's got a few few good extras on it. So fans of Nico Mastarakis will probably enjoy it. Uh, but again, this is strictly for, for genre fans, not really necessarily for anybody else. Nico, Nico made that movie Glitch back in the 80s. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 yeah, man. Good stuff. That's it. That's it this week. We had, so we got through a lot of stuff. Um, and, and we're going we're gonna, to you know, put something together good for you next week. Uh, I'm on radio this week as well on KPCC Film Week, scpr.org. If anybody's around on, uh, on Friday to uh, give that a listen at, uh, well, pretty much, I mean, it's live at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific time. And then uh, reruns on Saturday, and then it's podcastable. Otherwise, uh, email us at gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com and uh, ask us anything or go on the Facebook page. You can go on the Cinegods Facebook page or the Digigods Facebook group, which requires membership. And uh, we will see you guys next time. All right.